This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Progress in some areas, like, for example, self-driving cars, has not been as rapid as, as everyone predicted. And I think part of the reason that it turns out that driving a car in, say, New York City in traffic with pedestrians and bicyclists and all of that, it probably does require something at least pretty close to human-level intelligence in order to do that. Um, to deal with that that kind of a environment that is so unpredictable, and that's why the ironic thing is that you know the taxi driver isn't yet threatened, but the the consultant at Bain or McKinsey that you know has has a Harvard MBA degree might be threatened, right? It's great to welcome back to the podcast, futurist, TED speaker, the author of both Rise of the Robots, which was a New York Times bestseller, and his more recent Rule of the Robots, How Artificial Intelligence Will Transform Everything, Martin Ford. Welcome back, Martin. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Good to be here. Now, so Martin, you and I met at TED in 2017. Uh, I was very influenced by your book, uh, Rise of the Robots, which won awards for its prescience, and you were digging into the fact that AI was going to come online, is going to change businesses, going to change a lot of things. Um, now, is your phone ringing off the hook uh, with uh, ChatGPT arriving on the scene? Is everyone like, Martin, Martin, what the heck do we do? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say off the hook, but definitely, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> an issue that I've been talking about from for a long time is definitely getting a lot of attention. Um and, you know, yeah, some, you know, both of us kind of anticipated this in some way, right? Although it, it, it's interesting, um, what, you know, one thing I've been saying for a while is that the, I, I worry most about the white-collar jobs, you know, yep. the, the office drones, rather than the truck drivers. And, and it does seem that it's unfolding that way, at least in the short term. You know, it, it, it's more the knowledge-type work that, that is really being impacted and, and, and less so the manipulative work. Although, of course, in the long run, everything's going to impacted well you, you can see robots in amazon fulfillment centers that move various uh, packages around but to your point a lot of manual work is actually very costly and somewhat difficult to automate because you need a robot with digits that can go and grab yeah. things and do things and process things one of the examples it might have even been from one of your books that i think puts a a really good point on it is that it's very very hard to make a robot that can clean a hotel room Exactly, because you th you think of the skills that are required there, the the dexterity, the mobility, the the ability to deal with with really unpredictable environments, right? Something different left in the hotel room, and you have to determine is that something valuable that should be preserved or something that should be thrown away. Um, you know, human beings are extraordinarily good biological robots, right? And and to build um, a robot that can really compete with a human being in terms of th that kind of job is really still science fiction. And 
that's even more so for some of the areas that we would really like to see robots, like in, in elder care, you know, healthcare and so forth. So, uh, Martin, you talk about how you think knowledge work is going to be more readily automatable, which I totally agree with. So how do you see this playing out in various organizations? And we, we just said, look, cleaning a hotel room, very hard to automate. Having a robot do that's difficult. What is it easy now for AI to, to do that people can understand? I use the example of call center workers myself because everyone can understand that. Uh, there are two and a half million uh, call center workers in the U.S. still. Um, I think that's very, very automatable, and it's going to be tough to see what those workers do next. Um, they're making generally about 16 bucks an hour, um, many of them high school graduates. What, what's a job where you think, oh, my gosh, like that, the odds of that getting automated are sky high? Yeah, I mean, really anything. You, you know, I guess the first point to make is that it's not, it, it's not in most cases, going to be about complete jobs being automated. It's going to be about a large fraction of that job being automated, right? A lot of the tasks done within a particular job. And, and some people will look at that and they'll be very hopeful and they'll say, okay, well, if only some of the stuff that I'm doing is going to be automated, then I'll just spend all that time doing more creative things. And that will be too true for some workers, but I think for a great many workers, what happens is that you might have, you know, three people doing a particular job, and then all of a sudden, half of what each of those is doing gets automated, and then you've only got one or two jobs left, right, because it gets consolidated. And I think that that's the kind of thing we're going to see in many fields. It's not, it's not the case that a robot or an AI is going to come along, and there's going to be a one-to-one -one correspondence between the job that used to be there and, and, and the technology that takes that job. What happens instead is that tasks get automated, and then everything just gets restructured, and, and the definition of job shifts and at the end of the day, I think that within organizations, within departments, there are going to be fewer jobs, right? There'll be fewer people and more technology, but the, but the jobs titles and, and the functions of those jobs will be different than what they were before. And, you know, I think very likely that the people doing those jobs will also be different in terms of their skill set. So, um, but the bottom line is that anything of a white collar nature that involves you know, routine, repetitive, the best word I think is predictable, predictable information, manipulation, presentation, um, you know, that, that kind of work, whether it's generating the same report again and again, whether it's the same spreadsheet analysis you're doing again and again, um, even writing the same kind of news article again and again. I mean, e even before the advent of, of technologies like chat GPT, there were systems, you know, generating news stories for Bloomberg and so forth. And, and that's going to get a lot better. So anything that involves writing, presenting, analysis, um, and as you say, uh, you know, even customer service interaction with customers. Although I think in many cases, that's actually harder than some of the things that, you know, if you're just someone literally sitting in front of a computer, cranking away at a spreadsheet all day or something, that, that's probably the lowest bar in terms of, I think, what we're going to see automated. But really, it's, it's across the board. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't point to any particular, you know, industry and say this is the one that's going to be hit. I mean, certainly areas like finance, banking are going to be, you know, definitely impacted. But really, it's across the board. It's any, any kind of knowledge work um, that is fundamentally predictable. All right. Rules-based predictable cognitive work. Now, I, I have some insight into this, Martin, because I, I was a corporate attorney for five months. And uh, it turns out that even what people think of as very high-end legal work 
is very, very rules-based and predictable. Uh, the first thing you do as an attorney on one of these large-scale transactions is you find a deal template that resembles the deal you're looking at. And if you find the right template, then the joke is that you're literally just finding and replacing the names of the parties. Uh, but that's a non-trivial amount of even what people think of as very, very high-end legal work. I had a friend who worked at Bain, which is a, a prestigious consulting firm, and he said, well, AI can now do what I took four years to learn how to do in uh, five or ten minutes because what they might not tell you is that a lot of these management consulting engagements are very similar to each other. <laughs> you know, like there, there's something, you know, if you do a supply chain analysis for a uh, retailer, guess what? Uh, when the other retailer comes and asks you for a supply chain analysis, you can bust out <laughs> the, 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 the report that you did for the other one. Of course, you would never say you're doing that, but then you just, you know, like uh, figure out what applies and what doesn't. So you mentioned finance, which I totally agree is ripe for this. Uh, I, I'm going to throw law, management consulting, and accounting uh, into those categories. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and again, it's not that, that all the jobs are going to disappear or, or that entire jobs will disappear, but it's just a lot of what people were doing will disappear and then you'll need fewer people. And, and, you know, the, the thing that always strikes me, the kind of irony, as you, you, you mentioned Bain, you think about a consulting company like Bain or McKinsey, the qualifications of the people that, you know, you know, fight to get those jobs and get those jobs. I mean, you're talking Ivy League colleges and then Harvard Business School or whatever. Um, and those people are, yeah, they're going to be threatened by this. But that, you know, the, 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 the person cleaning the hotel room not so much, okay? And, and look at the, the difference in, in education and, and, and you know, qualifications between those two individuals. So I think most people would find it a bit ironic that it's actually you know, the, ho the hotel cleaner that, that is maybe got the more secure job um, as, as we look forward. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I am pumped to announce that I have a novel coming out on September 12th, The Last Election. It's a political thriller 
co-written with my friend Stephen Marsh, who wrote the book, The Next Civil War. If you listen to this podcast, Stephen's been a repeat guest. Stephen and I became friends and thought we should collaborate on a way to scare the shit out of people, but also entertain them with a story of what could happen in this upcoming election or the election thereafter. Do check it out at andrewyang.com slash books. And there's a special discount code last election that you can use for 30% off at the publisher's website. I'll be talking more about this book, but I'm so pumped to get this out into the world. Last election coming your way. Well, one reason why a lot of these jobs are not going to be automated is because it's so cheap to employ a human to perform them. Uh, you know, you look at some of these fast food workers uh, or the rest of it, and you look at it and say, well, you know, I can replace you, but I'm going to need someone around and you're only getting paid 16 bucks an hour. Whereas if you have a white collar worker that you're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, which is the case with some of the, the, right. the folks we're talking exactly about. Exactly. The, the incentive to automate is going to be much higher for those, you know, really high paid workers. And although what you're saying about the fast food workers and so forth, is kind of marginally true in the United States or, or other advanced countries like where I am right now. I, I'm in the Philippines. Here is definitely the case, you know, that the labor here is so cheap that it's kind of hard to see why or how a lot of this stuff would be automated. But um, definitely in advanced countries, um, I think we're, we're getting to that point. I, I agree with you that a lot of the organizations that employ some of these more expensive types of workers uh, are also in these industries where it's ruthless, it's hyper-competitive, they just need to, to deliver returns. You know, what's interesting is I was talking about Bain and my friend, the former Bain consultant, who was like, well, the, like there goes my four years of Bain training. Uh, Bain has actually been one of the most early adopters of AI, just coming out and saying, look, uh, we're going to use AI for all of your stuff. <laughs> and, you know, and then I heard about a law firm that has essentially banned AI, um, where they're saying uh, we're not going to use it at all. As you can tell from from the way I'm framing this, like I, I think uh, banning it is pretty dumb. Um, and I, I have a friend who's uh, running a legal automation company called Legalmation, and he said that they're seeing more interest than ever. So uh, it, it, this is, in your last book, you called it uh, as transformative as electricity. And saying your firm is not going to use electricity doesn't seem like a very winning. <laughs> yeah, right. So that, the, the law firm that you mentioned, I, I, I doubt that they're going to stick to that. I mean, because they're going to quickly find that they're, they're just not competitive, right? They're going to be, you know, billing, trying to bill it at rates to support people doing the work where other firms are, are able to automate a lot of that and they're not going to be competitive, right? So, yeah, the, the, you know, the end game is that I think every profession begins to look like professional sports or, or music where, you know, you, you, you know, in order to succeed, you got to be a superstar, right? You got this kind of superstar effect where, you know, a long time ago, there used to be um, lots of jobs for people like comedians and musicians um, and even, and even um, people that played sports, right? Because, because there was no television, there was no broadcasting. It was all local, right? So if you want to go to a sports match, you had to go to something in your, or or you wanted to listen to music, you had to go and, and actually listen to an orchestra, right? So there were lots of jobs, but you know, technology has transformed that and created a kind of a superstar effect where now a few people 
in all of those fields um, can essentially broadcast to the whole world and, and you know, capture all the, the value. And I think that, that we're going to see more of that kind of effect in fields like law and accounting and so forth, where a few people really thrive because all the nuts and bolts routine work is going to get automated. And probably the, the people that are going to really thrive are going to be the rainmakers, right? The people that bring in business. If you're working for McKinsey and you're bringing in new clients or a law firm, you're bringing in new clients, then, then you're going to be safe, right? That's, that's going to be what matters. So, Martin, you have been hitting this message since what year? 2009 is when I wrote my first book, The Lights in the Tunnel. Which I read um, of your four books. I've enjoyed them all. I'm a Martin Ford uh, aficionado. (laughs) So you have literally spoken around the world to governments, corporations, universities. Your TED Talk was seen more than three million times. What level of preparedness do you think that that we have either in the US or elsewhere for what AI will mean in terms of the workforce, education, government, democracy, media? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty minimal level of preparedness. And, you know, that's not surprising. I mean, if, if you look at history, the big changes, adaptations happen when we really get into a crisis, right? I mean, uh, we had the Great Depression, and the Great Depression produced social security and unemployment insurance. All of those things would have been unimaginable before that crisis. So I've, I've always kind of felt that, you know, the kind of things that, that you've been talking about as well, like a universal basic income, are, are, are ideas that I think need to be considered seriously in order to adapt to this for the future. But it's, it's just an extraordinarily radical idea, right, in terms of the political context, um, especially in the U.S. And I've, I've always felt that there's almost no possibility of, of something like that happening until there's a fairly dire crisis, right? So that probably will be what it takes. My hope is that by having at least a conversation about this and making people aware of it and maybe doing some experiments with UBI to gather the necessary data, information that we need to really craft a, a program that if and when we do get into that crisis, then maybe we can adapt pretty quickly. But, you know, just just in terms of the politics in the United States, which is getting worse and worse, and, and it's impossible to do even the smallest thing, let alone something something so radical like, like a UPI that, uh, you know, I, I think it will probably take a crisis, you know, before, before we really make those kinds of changes. And uh, how do you see a crisis like that uh, shaping up? And incidentally, I agree with your estimation in many ways. Back in the 70s, when Nixon was looking at basic income equivalent, um, they actually did large-scale trials in communities around the country saying, oh, let's see how it goes. So uh, I uh, harken back to that because it, it seems like we're light years away from that now in the U.S., where if, if someone were to look at it and be like, oh, let's just try this in, in places. I think we should be running trials all over the country, to your point. Um, but how do you see this crisis manifesting? Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to predict, right? I mean, for example, when you wrote your book, you talked about um, trucker revolts, right? The truckers were going to block the highways and stuff like this. And as I said, now it looks like it's more the, the, the white collar that's progressing faster, right? So, so we're going to see the white collar workers maybe impacted first. And actually, there's a hopeful note in that, I think, isn't there? Because, you know, if it's fast food workers and Walmart workers, then those people don't have a lot of power, you know? But white collar workers you know, high income consultants and attorneys and 
people like that. I mean, that's, I mean, that's more or less the backbone of the, the Democratic Party, really, in terms of the people that, that, that you know, drive the politics. Um, so I, I think there's some hopeful note in that this might be a bit top-heavy in terms of how it impacts and, and actually um, impacts some groups of people that actually have more influence and power over the political system than, than other groups of workers might, and maybe that will help to drive things a little faster. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S V-P-N dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So we talked about how you're likely to have this kind of superstar effect in various industries, winner take all, which I agree with, by the way. And uh, I, I feel particularly bad for young people because I think that the folks who are going to be in position to benefit from the efficiencies of AI will tend to be more senior in these organizations. Uh, you'll, you'll have like this layer of rainmakers, to your point, where if I'm the person that the mega clients trust, then I can essentially name my price and then there's the, this entire layer of uh, automation and AI b below me. And then there'll be some people that help steward the AI and help hone the product. Um, but if you're a young person coming in, uh, it seems like the ladder is going to evaporate uh, before you get there, <laughs> especially because... Yeah, yeah no, I think, I think that's a very good point. Um, I mean, if you look at the nature of work, it's really the entry-level jobs that tend to be more routine and predictable because, you know, you're just getting, getting started, right? That's, that's yeah. the way organizations have worked. They give, you you know, the, you, come, you come in your first job out of college and they give you something that's routine and predictable and you, you get started with that. But those are exactly the jobs that are most likely to be automated. So as you say, that, that career ladder I kind of is, you know, kind of evaporating. And I, and I think that's been true for a while. It's not just happening now. I mean, if you look at the fact that, um, you know, we've got this, this phenomenon that some people call elite overproduction, meaning 
that there are just too many people graduating from college and expecting they're going to get these professional jobs and there aren't enough out there, which is why you see people with college degrees working at Starbucks, right, as, as baristas. And that's turning out to not just be, you know, a summer job, it's turning out to be their career, right? And, and I think that, that certainly the impact of technology and the fact that these, these jobs have been disappearing for some time, as well as, of course, being outsourced to, to you know, other countries um, is, is a big part of that. And it's going to get to be a bigger and bigger problem. In the, in, in the further future, it may result in a problem of, of really developing the, the, the kind of talent you need at the top as well. Like you say, right now, there are all these experienced people. They're going to benefit from this. But, but those people are not going to be there forever. You know, no, nobody lives forever. So if we don't have this career ladder, then who replaces those people? Is, are we really going to have AI that can replace CEOs? Or, or how do people, you know, get on the path to getting that kind of experience if, if these jobs um, evaporate? So I, I think there are lots of issues for us there. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, how it all plays out or... or, or um, the answers to that, but definitely there, you know, there's just a whole range of issues in terms of the job market and, and which jobs are going to be there and how we develop the, the skills we need in the future. Yeah, the, there, there is one field I think is going to grow predictably. And so to the extent that this is appealing to people listening to this or watching this, prompt engineer, which is trying to find exactly the right prompt to feed the AI to get the yeah. quality output. Uh, and it, and the, there are people re- advertising right now for prompt engineer positions that will pay six figures. Uh, and someone compared it to being able to use Google. Uh, believe it or not, there was a moment in time when people couldn't naturally use Google, <laughs> I, I guess, right, or right. like the Google search was a thing. So um, the better prompt the AI gets, the better the work product. So if you can... Uh, feed the AI in a particular way, you'll actually have a job um, because yeah, there's going to be some other person so, that so, wants to, to access the AI but doesn't want to think about like exactly what prompt to give it. Yeah. So, so I mean, you look at someone like me, I'm, I'm sort of my more recent career has been as a, as a writer, right? I've, I've written books and articles and stuff. I've all, I think I'm a fairly good writer. Maybe that's, you know, a skill that's not valued anymore, right? But actually being able to write the material is something that the AI will do. But what matters is being able to write the prompt to get the AI to, to write what you want to write, which is actually something I, I, I am not necessarily good at at all. So, so it may you know, not be so good for me. Good thing I'm old, right? But, <laughs> um, but I mean, I worry about that. I hope that, uh, you know, as a society, we don't stop teaching young people how to write, you know, like, like that, that becomes a lost art or something because... The AI does it. Um, so th- this is definitely a, another concern, you know, that we're going to lose a lot of skills and capabilities that we feel are important, right? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So you, you pose something very interesting, which is 
the idea of elite overproduction. And if you look at past political revolutions throughout world history, uh, elite overproduction is one of the preconditions to a political revolution, is that you have folks who, in this case, let's say, have law degrees or college degrees and don't have good jobs and they get pissed off. And then they start uh, saying, hey, you know, we, we need change. In America, there's been a group of knowledge workers that have gotten displaced over the last 15 years uh, in the tens of thousands. They're all highly educated. They're actually good writers. And I'm talking about journalists, particularly local journalists. I think the number of displaced local journalists is something around uh, 40 or 50,000. Um, and one of the observations I made is like, how the heck could all these people lose their jobs? And there's no protest. There is no, um, demonstration. There's no, uh, there's no organization. Um, by the way, this is still going on. I mean, like journalists are still getting axed. So when, when you talk about a bunch of ticked off college graduates who are underemployed and then they come together as a political force, um, historically you'd be right based upon other societies, but in the U.S., I don't know if I see it. Uh, the underemployment rate for college graduates that I last saw, you know, published, it was 33%. Um, and then so you stack on the unemployment rate, you're probably looking at something closer to 40%. And so you have a lot of unemployed and underemployed college graduates now um, who aren't really organizing into any – I mean, maybe they're organizing in, in a particular way. Um, but uh, that, like that this – the American political system is fascinating in that right now it really tends to mute any uh, any voice <laughs> um, that is trying to make significant changes. And, you know, I've now dug into this with structural reform and, and what I'm doing with Forward. Now, you, you talked about this group as the backbone of the Democratic Party, which you'd be right since the Democratic Party has become the party of the college graduate uh, coastal crew to a much higher degree. Um, I think it's one reason why you saw student loan forgiveness um, uh, as like an element uh, of this past year or two. But, I, you know, I, I'm, I think the jury is out whether that's going to move things in, in this direction in terms of addressing automation. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think anything would help because, as you know, like I, I think that we need to speed up yeah, you're right. It is in some sense surprising that we haven't seen more you know, disruption as a result of, of the impact on journalism. I think it's an excellent example. But I guess what you see there, I think journalism is a perfect example of the kind of superstar effect that I'm talking about, right? You still got the people that are hanging on to their jobs at the New York Times and they are still the elite, right? And you've got all these other people that worked for all the other media organizations, newspapers that have lost their jobs. Uh, we don't quite know what has happened to them. They're trying to get by writing, you know, freelance stuff. And then you've got these superstars that have gone to Substack, you know, people like Andrew Sullivan and Matt Iglesias who were, you know, hoovering up money, right? Because because they were positioned to do that, right? They were already yep. basically at the top of their professions. They moved over to Substack and it worked great for them. And so now you've got all these other probably thousands of people joining Substack thinking they're going to do the same thing as Andrew Sullivan. And, and you know, it's not going to happen because, you know, everything you look at is, is subject to this kind of power law distribution, right? Where, where you know, the winner-take-all effect, right? Where you've got a few people just, just minting money, you know, just, just they've got all the audience, 
just like the superstar athletes and the superstar musicians, you know, just like Taylor Swift, right? But then you got all the regular people that, that aspire to that, that are probably never going to go there. I mean, if you look at, you look at something like Substack or, or, you know, trying to monetize YouTube videos, that kind of thing, you've got a very small number of people that do extremely well. And then everyone else, it's, you know, nickels and dimes, right? It's, it's, it's barely lunch money, but you've got all these people, you know, I run into young people now and, and you ask them, well, what do you, what do you want to do? I, I want to be a YouTube influencer or something. I mean, it's, it's no more realistic than saying you want to play in the NBA, right? I have kids and, and they also want to be uh, YouTube YouTubers. I mean, it's unfortunate because, you know, you, you want to be what you see. So for all of our kids, it's YouTube and TikTok. Yeah, but it's, it's just not something that can support large numbers of people, right? It's not going to be like accounting where you, you, you've got jobs for hundreds of thousands of accountants. You know, you never, you're going to have a few visible people that do well at that, but it's not, it's not enough to support people. That's why I, I really think ultimately we're going to have to have income supplementation, you know, UBI or whatever else similar to that, but, but something along those lines um, in order to get support and, and, and money to people. Martin, I remember vividly you and I hanging out at TED. You just did your TED Talk, uh, trying to scare the shit out of everyone. Um, I came over to you after, I don't know if you remember this exchange and I was like, Hey Martin, FYI, I think you're right. And then, <laughs> and then yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. yeah. And, and the folks around us, um, kind of took the bull case where they were just like, Oh, you know, new jobs will, uh, originate because, uh, of these technologies. Well, I mean, this was the Ted conference and, and this is, I mean, techno It's a bunch of entrepreneurs and builders who are very, very optimistic, to your point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you and I were like, look, of course there'll be some new great shit coming, but there's going to be a lot of very bad stuff for, for a lot of, like, regular people. Yeah, I mean, but of course the people at the TED conference are not, in fact, regular people, right? So they don't, they maybe don't see that as clearly as, as, as a lot of average people do, I think. Well, I certainly saw it, and you helped me see it. You've been a prophet and a visionary. So what do you see coming down the pike now? And again, uh, you get calls from uh, very high-end organizations all the time trying to get your crystal ball. Uh, like, what are you seeing and hearing? Um, has ChatGPT changed a lot of people's minds? Yeah, I think it's had an extraordinary impact. I mean, I, I don't think there's any other technology I can think of that in such a small amount of time so rapidly has really just caught the imagination of the public. And I, and I think what's happened is people have really looked at it and they said, wow, you know, AI is really here. And to some extent, that's true. Um, you know, and yet the other side of that is I think it's also, it's also overhyped. A lot of people are looking at, at GPT-4 or chat GPT and they're thinking this is the emergence of, of AGI, right? Human level AI, and I, I'm per personally skeptical of that. Um, I think it's an extraordinarily powerful tool that's going to be used in many, many different ways. Um, but what it amounts to is a system that can write or, or speak, but it can't really think, you know, and there, there's a big difference there. Uh, and, you know, some people do believe that, that, you know, by the time you get to GPT-7 or 8 or 15, that this will evolve into 
a true thinking system. And maybe that's true, but I think there's a lot more stuff that needs to be put in there. Um, you know, my, my view on this is that intelligence probably requires manipulating the world in some way. I mean, you think of a, a human baby, almost from the moment they're born, they begin to reach out and touch things and, and, and interact with their environment. And this is how they learn. This is what they, they, this is how people achieve what we think of as common sense, right? Which is basically our under, understanding of the world, the physics of the world, you know, um, and most of that is unwritten. And yet with, with these GPT systems, essentially what you're talking about is a, a system that is trying to become intelligent just by reading, right? That's all it does is it, these large language models, it assimilates words, right? Written words. And as a result of that, it becomes really powerful at generating written material. But can you become intelligent? Can you really understand the world just by reading? Well, I, I tell my kids the answer is yes, but... Uh... In terms of common sense, we make a lot of assumptions about what, what we understand. It's not, you know, otherwise every book would be 10,000 pages long if you had to explain everything in detail, right? We, we, we make a lot of assumptions in terms of common sense, right? And I don't know how chat GPT can pick that up and how it can really build a a true model of the world and become intelligent. Also, AGI, which you referred to, is uh, artificial general intelligence, uh, where you have a thinking machine. And uh, I agree with you that uh, this thing may not actually be sentient uh, in that way. Uh, but I also think that it's not going to make a difference uh, for a lot of practical purposes, um, where if it can write a press release or uh, an investment analysis or a newspaper article uh, in seconds um, or a college paper. I mean, you know, like what, what the heck does that mean? I think that's exactly right. And that's a point I've been trying to be make. I've tried many times to make for a long time is that in terms of automating many jobs, probably most jobs, you don't need human level intelligence, right? Nope. Because most people are not drawing on general human level intelligence in most of what they do. Most people are doing predictable routine things that, that you know, doesn't really require human level intelligence. Um, some aspects of their jobs do, but again, what we're going to see is all the routine stuff is going to get automated. And the only thing that's going to be left is that, that stuff that really does require human level intelligence. And, and that's going to result in fewer jobs. And that also, I think, explains why progress in some areas, like, for example, self-driving cars, has not been as rapid as, as everyone predicted. And I think part of the reason that it turns out that driving a car in, say, New York City in traffic with pedestrians and bicyclists and all of that, it probably does require something at least pretty close to human level intelligence in order to do that, um, to deal with that, that kind of a environment that is so unpredictable. And that's why... Um, the ironic thing is that, you know, the taxi driver isn't yet threatened, but the the consultant at Bain or McKinsey that, you know, has has a Harvard MBA degree might be threatened, right? Yeah, it, it's a fine note for us to end on, which is one, one of the things I observed in my book uh, was that we're training people to be more like robots and then rewarding them for those capacities, uh, you know, where... where if you think about our notions of work right now, it's, it's around efficiency and sucking it up and uh, working to all hours. Uh, certainly that was the case in my old uh, law firm um, and various professions where 
you had to be more like a machine. And and I thought the irony was that the more of the the folks that we've tried to train to the moon, we tried to turn into essentially uh, cut-rate machines. And then when the machines become better able to do that work, then those people are going to be like, wait, what? <laughs> like, you know, I spent all this time, you know, fighting for this role. Um, and, and meanwhile, uh, what we're going to need more of uh, has fallen under favor, which is stuff around humanities, arts, creativity, humanism, really. Uh, people have gravitated towards technical fields like computer science and also economics because those are supposed to be more practical. And there, there was part of me that's like, look, guys, I mean, you th basic coding is going to get done by by machines. Uh, you know, if you're trying to economically optimize AI can figure that out a lot of the time. It's like, you know, in, in many ways, we have to be trying to steer ourselves in other directions. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think that kind of the underlying problem there is that the market doesn't value, you know, human humanities and art and things like that. And that's why people have been, you know, transitioning away from that. But as you say, that's the uniquely human stuff that will be left for us. We just got to figure out how we're going to pay people to do that. And again, I think that sort of gets back to a UBI type ideas, right? Um, that maybe are going to be part of that solution. You know, Martin, maybe you and I should collaborate on what this economy of the future should look like. I agree with you, obviously, that UBI and uh, what you called income supplementation has to be part of it. And I also agree with you that's like, hey, there's a lot of good stuff that we kind of want to see. The question is, how do people get paid to do it? Right, exactly. So it's, it's um, something that a lot of people need to think about. So, Well, hopefully we'll make it happen together, Martin. Um, a real pleasure. What's next from you? Are you working on a new project or book? Uh, I haven't started a new book yet. I mean, there's so much unfolding right now in AI that, that I think I need to wait and see what happens and then write the book. Uh, um, I think this, this book, Rule of the Robots, is still a very good overview of, of the field, you know, for, for someone that, that really wants to understand, you know, not just the opportunities, but also the risks, the things that are going to go wrong, the things that we really should be worried about. Because um, I do think there are a lot of things that we we need to worry about and we should be talking about and and probably taking steps to regulate, you know, and it's not happening as fast as it should be. So I hope a lot of people will join this conversation, you know, because we really we really need that. It needs to be totally on the radar. I completely agree. Rule of the Robots, How Artificial Intelligence Will Transform Everything. Uh, by the brilliant Martin Ford and the very, very human Martin Ford. Thank you, Martin, for, for joining us. And uh, we'll, we'll have you back when ChatGPT5 comes out. <laughs> yeah, if, or, or, or you'll have the, the, the robot version of me by then, maybe. But uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It was a great, a great discussion. As always, Martin. See you soon. <laughs>